Frank Abagnale Jr. He's one of the world's most successful con men. If you've seen the movie, catch me if you can. It was all about him, the true story of a guy at the age of 16, manned the cockpit of commercial airliners across the world to clock over 1 million miles without a day of training. That's a, that's a great con man. He then um, looked at studying the finance industry and particularly checks and bonds that saw him leverage money that wasn't his own to pocket over $2.5 million over five years. Uh, this guy is pretty good. He then posed as a doctor and a lawyer, and he even passed Louisiana State Bar without going to law school. Uh, he's kind of con man extraordinaire before time caught up with him. He definitely lived the high life. He says in his autobiography this, I stole every nickel and blew it on fine threads, luxurious lodgings, fantastic foxes, and other sensual goodies. I partied in every capital in Europe, basked on all the world's most famous beaches. What was it that made this man tick? As you look into his life a little more, it wasn't the things. It was actually people. He had an insatiable desire to be liked by those around him. His first con was actually on his dad at age 15. He worked out that if he bought things on his dad's fuel card and then returned them to the attendant for cash and gave the attendant a small percentage, he could cash the money himself. And so he did that for one reason date money. It was all about taking girls out on dates so they would like him, so he looked like he had the bling. A year later, after that moment, at 16, he was pretending to be a pilot for exactly the same reason. He he recalls in his autobiography uh, what his father said, and it shows his love of people. Listen, his dad said this, and it's on the screen. You'll learn, Frank, that when you're up, there are hundreds of people who claim you as a friend. And when you're down... You're lucky if one of them will buy you a cup of coffee. What his dad was trying to show him were the morals of life, but Frank just determined that he must always be up. And so he kept running to be surrounded by people who would treat him as friends. Frank Abagnale Jr. used every possible means and every possible moment to return him his greatest desire, friends. In this passage today, Jesus uses the cunningness of a con man to readjust our view of where our greatest returns are found. He will show us that the con man in this story, he's actually got something right. Not everything, not everything, but something that we need to learn from, something we need to hear. Now, if you're here today and it's the first time you've come along or you're not yet a Christian, I really hope that you'll see Jesus isn't after your money. He's not going, oh, I need you to give me more money. And we as a church, we're not after your money either. We want you to see who Jesus is, and I hopefully will show as we go through this passage that Jesus is trying to lift our eyes to what really matters in life, and our money ends up being a barometer for what matters most. If you're here today and you're finding it hard financially, please don't hear this passage as a burden, but as a great joy about how we use all that we've given. We don't go through and pick out passages of the Bible to go, yes, this is what church needs to hear. We just work through books of the Bible, and this week, this is what God has for us. So at the end of this morning's talk. I'm going to have time for questions. There'll be a number on the screen. Throughout the sermon, you can text any questions that come up that you want to ask to that number. And at the end of the sermon, we'll, we'll answer them. They'll come up on the screen and we can, we can go from there. So let's come with me and see what Jesus has to say about what matters most. Luke 16, verse 1. He also said to his disciples, that there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. He calls in the manager and asks, what's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. 
you hate those moments, you're called into the principal's office. You're like, ah, oh, I'm in trouble. What's going to go on? What can I do? How can I get out of it? I don't know if you've ever been in those situations. Then the manager said to himself in verse 3, what should I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. Like Frank Abagnale, this con man is concerned with his immediate future and being welcomed by his friends. That's what's going through his head. He's shonky from the start. He's probably the, the equivalent of a modern day fund manager. Right now, I'm not saying all modern day fund managers are shonky. There's not kind of an equivalence there. Um, but basically, he's someone who's looking after his boss's assets. He's got control over how they're used. And like the prodigal son before him, this fund manager has squandered everything that didn't belong to him. Well, not everything, but a lot. As a manager, he hasn't done a good job. So he conducts a con. With a little time left and, and, and the relationships at his disposal, he calls each person in who owes his boss some money. How much do you owe? The first guy says 100 measures of olive oil. That's a year's wages. That's a lot. <laughs> You owe a whole year's worth of wages. The manager says, let's have it. You can imagine the smile on that guy's face. Are you serious? This is brilliant. <laughs> like, you're the man. And he walks out happy. He calls the next one in. How much do you owe? He says, 100 measures of wheat. It's like three or four years wages. This guy owes a lot. He says, let's make it 80. Let's, let's reduce it by almost a year's. Let's give you a year's money worth, worth for free. You can imagine what these guys are like. Imagine one day you get a call from your bank manager and she says, look, um, I've just been looking over your mortgage and I've decided to revise what you owe us. You're like, oh, that can never be good. And then she says, we've decided to reduce your $600,000 loan to $300,000 and fix your interest rate at 4%. You're like, are you serious? That's brilliant. Like that you can imagine how you'd respond if you saw that bank manager at a party. You'd be like, hey, I want to hang out with you. That is fantastic news. The bank manager, she says, look, it's on me. If the bank has an issue with it, I'll take full responsibility. That's what this con man's doing. He's, he's got a risky plan, but to ensure friendships for the only future he has on view. And then the story takes a twist. The master returns. And you're like, you are going to be hung out to dry. You just wait. I remember as a kid standing outside the principal's office waiting for the principal to come through and thinking how much trouble I was going to be in, what I was going to say to my parents about the stupid things that I'd done and why I was suspended from school. And you're just like, this is not going to be a good day. I remember that gut feeling. Luke 16, verse 8. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely. You don't expect that, do you? You don't expect that response. And you kind of got to go, why? What is, why is Jesus telling this story that way? This guy has done something that's dodgy and not right. See, originally the master was looking for a manager who would manage his money to provide a return. And all this manager has been doing has been squandering it, just like the parable of the prodigal son on himself. But now this manager has leveraged it to provide for his future. Ironically enough, that's what the master wants. Someone with the guts to take risks for the future that they can see. You're going to take risk with his money, not to squander it, but to get a return for it. And so Jesus says in verse 8, The sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of the unrighteous money, so that when it fails... 
they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. What on earth is Jesus saying here? <laughs> I don't know if you sit here and go, hang on, are you condoning ripping off our bosses to secure our future? I don't want to tell the staff at EV this. This is bad, right? We don't, don't, don't do this. This is not good. You know, no boss wants to go, this is right. Is, is, it, is Jesus' message become a con man for the kingdom? That's what we should do. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> Quite clearly, a second point in your outline, what he is not saying. Jesus is not saying we should defraud our bosses to secure our future. Look at verse 10. It's quite clear in verse 10. Whoever is faithful with very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. To be faithful is to be trustworthy and to be dependable, to be someone who does what is right. To be unrighteous is to be unjust. Here we keep seeing throughout Scripture, throughout Jesus' dealings, that God is a God of justice. He always does what's right. He calls us to do what's right. He's not saying here that what he did, this con man did with his manager, was the right thing to do. But there's something right about it. Uh, Jesus has said, or John would say a little bit later in 1 John 3, Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. God always does what is right. Jesus has just explained over the last six chapters that following him means loving your neighbor, not ripping them off. Uh, to keep the heart of a law and not using the law to reduce your obligations. Jesus will say that he's come to fulfill the law, not abolish it. And that includes the commandment not to steal. We should not steal. But unlike this con man, Jesus is pushing us to be faithful with whatever we have. If you're faithful with a small amount, with whatever you have, then you'll be faithful with a larger amount. Faithfulness is what matters. But it's not the only thing that matters. So so what is Jesus saying with this story here? Point three, what is he saying? What he's saying is that a bad guy can teach us a good lesson about what matters most in life. A bad guy can teach us a good lesson about what matters most in life. Like the manager in this story, all that we have is not our own. It's all borrowed. Everything, my money, my time, my possessions. I can't keep any of it. At death, all of it goes. I can't take it with me to what happens next. And it's all given from God. It's kind of a particular view the Bible has all throughout Scripture. Michael read from 1 Chronicles this morning, or Job one twenty one. Job says this in reflection of losing everything. He says, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. What does that mean? Everything is God's. He gives to us and he can take it. It's his. It's on loan. We don't own what we have. We manage it. We steward it. We look after it. But it's not ours. It's been given to you from God, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe about him. Everything you have is his. 1 Chronicles twenty nine eleven. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and power and glory and the splendor and the majesty for everything in the heavens and on the earth belongs to you. Deuteronomy 10, 14, the heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. That includes us. Psalm 24, 1, the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to this God, the Lord. What we have is not our own. We, like this manager in the parable, will be called to account for how we manage all that God has given us. And Jesus' point in the story is that this shrewd manager uses all he has access to in the moment, everything at his disposal 
to benefit the only future that this fund manager can see. But unlike the shrewd manager, those who follow Jesus, who are his disciples, notice he switched to talking to his disciples in this section, those who follow Jesus are not focused on the here and now and the immediate future, but the future that is beyond death's door, the future that Jesus offers. There is life after death. This is not it. It is but a tiny taste of what is to come. Because of Jesus' death in our place and God raising him to life, we can be certain that our greatest debt has been paid. Our debt toward God for not treating him as we should, for ignoring the creator of life, our very life should be taken from us. You ignore the one who gives you life, then you deserve for life to be taken. But Jesus came and died for us. He paid the penalty for us. Our rebellion against God has been paid for totally so that we might live not for this life, but for the life that is to come beyond death's door. A life that does not end. A life that is in right relationship with God and his people. That is what we live for. Not today, not for our retirement, but for eternity. 40 billion years and then another 40 billion years more is a long, long time. We have an everlasting kingdom, Paul tells us, that will never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you because of the work of Jesus. Only because of the work of Jesus. Please hear me very clearly here. Jesus is not saying you can work your way to heaven. By, by, using the, by using our money in a way that thinks about the future, it doesn't mean we can buy a spot in heaven. No, that's only been bought by the death of Jesus in our place. But he's saying we're lifting our horizon to more than just what is here and now. Jesus has offered a horizon beyond death. And his point in this parable is to push followers of Jesus to use what we have that is only on loan now, not our own, to make a difference in eternity for the future that matters. Look at verse 8. The sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of their unrighteous money so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. What matters in eternity? That's not what car you drive or what parts of the globe you've visited. Every good thing we have today is just a shadow of what is to come. What matters in eternity is people. People. It's about relationship. Relationship with God and relationship with others. Now listen to Paul talk through the, the one thing that can go through death's door. Philippians 4 verse 1, he says this. So then, my brothers... You are dearly loved and longed for, my joy and my crown. In this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. He sees, Paul sees that the church in Philippi as his joy and his crown. What does that mean? Well, look at 1 Thessalonians 2. For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? The thing Paul is working for is to see people trust Jesus and cross from death to life and, and spend an eternity with him. People who put their trust in Jesus today will be the people that we'll share eternity with forever. Jesus is saying the best investment you can make is to use funds that you can't take with you. Energy, time, relationships, intellect, all that God has loaned you right now so that you might increase your relationships with people in eternity. That's what's on view. 
spending time with people who will forever be thankful for us sharing the gospel with them or for us freeing up our, the money that has been loaned to us by God to see more people come to know him. Those of you who've become Christians here at EV, how will you respond to those that you've never met who, because of their financial generosity, allowed EV to start and supported this church? I'm sure 10,000 years from now, you'll still be thankful, saying, thank you so much that you shared the news of Jesus uh, by using your funds for the kingdom. One billion years from now, you'll still be saying the same thing. 40 billion years from now, forever. There is a party beyond death's door where the things that we have will no longer be on loan. Jesus pictures what we have is an inheritance. It becomes ours, genuinely ours forever. Imagine the joy of spending eternity ruling with others um, alongside God's creation who we've had some impact on. Imagine how, how they will welcome us into eternal homes. He's not saying, oh, that's how you get a home in heaven. He's saying those relationships are good and great and that is what we are to invest in. That's what he's talking about in verse 11. He says in verse 11, if you've not been faithful with the unrighteous money, in other words, the money that was on loan now, the, the, the money that was the, the manager's, who will, you trust, sorry, who will trust you with what is genuine? If you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? We need to be faithful with what is on loan because it will affect eternity for those who hear the news of Jesus and remain in Jesus. I want to ask a question. Who's ever heard of a man by the name of Humphrey Monmouth? Show of hands. Humphrey Monmouth. Okay, one or two of you. Humphrey Monmouth was someone who used what was on loan to him to bring about phenomenal eternal return. I'll show you a quick video of a guy who studied him to see what he did and how it is really encouraging. Have a look. Hey, my name is John, and I believe that every person I've ever met has a unique contribution to make to the world. Like pieces of a puzzle that all fit together, or instruments in an orchestra that all play one song, I believe we all have a part to play. The problem is most of us don't know what our part is. And a few years ago, I met a friend of a friend in Sydney, Australia. He shared with me a part that is often overlooked. He said that when we look at the great movements of the gospel in history, we see that God raises up pioneering missionaries and well-known leaders and preachers, but he also raises up people to support them, partner with them, fund them, be their behind-the-scenes partner and support. He called those people gospel patrons. For example, 500 years ago, there was a man named William Tyndale. And Tyndale wanted to translate the Bible into English for the very first time. The Bible had been in Latin in Europe for a thousand years, and the Roman church wanted to keep it that way. Tyndale knew that most of the people in his nation didn't know Latin. His friends, family, they couldn't read the Bible. So they didn't hear God speak in their very own language. But he wanted to change that. The problem was Bible translation was illegal. It was considered heresy. You could be killed for it. But Tyndale had this burning ambition to do something great for his nation and not the means to do it. Until a man named Humphrey Monmouth, a cloth merchant in London, came alongside Tyndale and said, Tyndale, I've heard God's given you a job to do. I think it's time you get to work. Come live at my house. I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. Get to work. And so Tyndale did. For six months, he lived with Humphrey Monmouth and was translating day and night from the Greek originals to an English New Testament. When it was finished, Monmouth used his merchant ships to help smuggle 3,000 copies of the English New Testament all throughout England. And they lit the English Reformation through an English Bible. And England has never been the same. And behind it all, he was a gospel patron who was almost forgotten in history. 
in Humphrey, Monmouth. Once I heard stories like this that day in Sydney, I was lit up. So for three years, I've been researching and studying, interviewing experts and scholars, going to old libraries like Cambridge and Oxford to try to get inside of what made these people tick. How did these partnerships really work in history? How has God used those behind-the-scenes figures? They weren't the men on the stage with the microphone. They were behind the scenes, often gifted in business and making money and being generous. How did God use them? And what might it look like for us to live not just for what we can get, but what we can give? So what I'm excited about is to bring these stories back to life for our generation, to see that we can learn from history and find our way forward today. I'm excited to bring these stories to life so that as we find our parts to play in the stories that are yet to be written by God, we light up with joy and find the purpose He's created us for. I'd love your help to bring this message to the world. You see, Monmouth had applied those principles of all he had, ships, to share this gospel, this news of Jesus that Tyndale had translated, and it lit up the English Reformation. Uh, We have English Bibles today in that line because Tyndale translated it, and here we are, reading it in languages that we can understand. Uh, It won't be in heaven the preachers and leaders that are those that have got the kind of lots of people going, oh, how great you are. It'll be those that prayed and partnered financially with them to see people move from death to life. What makes me say that? Philippians 4, Paul says that those that profit from his ministry are not him, but those who partnered with him. Have a look, Philippians 4 verse 15. He says, And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. Do you see that? I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. It's not talking about some earthly profit. It's talking about the reality that these people who partnered with Paul to support him as he shared the gospel throughout Philippi and Thessalonica and all the the area of of, um, the Mediterranean will be seeing people in eternity going, thank you so much for that gift. For you enabled the gospel to come to me so I could trust in Jesus and I could see life forever. And we'll get to share those, or they'll get to share those relationships forever. I used to think that the people that were extraordinarily generous were so self-sacrificial. But really, it's the best investment you can make. It's the only investment that will last beyond death's door. How are you investing what God has lent to you? If you want to read some more of those stories, there's two other gospel patrons that he talks about in that book. You can grab your Connect card and write down, I'd love the gospel patrons book. I've got it as a PDF that I can send to you and also as an audio book. So if you like PDF, gospel patrons PDF or audio book, it's a great read. Uh, and the end has a little bit in it about Auckland, which might interest you. Well, the question for us then is this, who is your king? Who's your king? Who is it that you will serve? Jesus goes on in verse 13 to say, No household slave can be the slave of two masters, since he'll either hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't be slaves of both God and money. It is impossible to live for God and to live for money. You cannot do both. Both cannot be your master. If we're honest, it's pretty easy to make it look like we're serving Jesus. You know, for fear of pride, we almost always remove all talk of money, particularly in Christian circles. Um, But, you know, Jesus speaks on money 10 times more than he speaks on sexual immorality. 
He speaks a lot on how money really is a barometer of who we are worshipping. We've got all sorts of accountability groups and patterns set up across our church and churches across the world on how we're going with purity to make sure that we are sexually pure. But I've never heard of an accountability group set up to deal with greed. Because when we talk about money, we're like, oh, no, don't go there. Because it is potentially our greatest God. Perhaps that's one of the questions we need to be asking one another. Not how much are you giving, but how are you going with greed? How are you going and investing in what matters, on seeing what matters into eternity? People move from death to life to trust Jesus. Are you investing in areas that are going to see people do that? Is that what we're doing as a church? Are we making sure that we're ordering all we do, not around our comfort, but around people coming to know him and remain in him, and more and more people being trained up to go out across this world so that we might be partnering to see people in eternity where we can say, oh, well, they'll say to us, I'm so glad you gave that $10. Because it in part helped this person be funded to explain the news of Jesus and see me stand firm to the end. And I'll be saying that for eternity. It's easy to con others where our hearts lie. But Jesus in this parable shows us that you can't con the king. You can't con the king. Luke 16 verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money and were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. And he told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. These Pharisees, rather than using the worldly wealth to make friends in eternity, become friends with money instead. Here Jesus is revealing our own hearts. He's pushing us to say, what are you going to be like, Rowan? What are you going to be like, E.V.? Are you going to be a church that consistently seeks, and God knows our heart, but consistently seeks to see return in eternity, to see return on people trusting in Jesus. That's what makes God's heart tick. That needs to be what makes our heart tick and how we use our money and time and energy. So how do we use his money? How do we think through this? Well, I've got a couple of questions. Uh, By the way, at EV, our stats are on the back of the outline every week. uh, And you'll see we update them each month as to where our giving is at compared to budget. Um, If you're um, giving to EV, that's 62% of our regular people at church, those that aren't visitors. 62% of uh, regulars are are giving to church, which I think is really exciting. That's really encouraging. I want to say to the other, what is that, 38%. You're missing out. You're missing out on returns in heaven. Uh, So think through how you can be using what God has given you. However small or however big that is, the key is to be faithful with what God has entrusted you with. So if you want to start giving, we only do it by direct deposit on on the back because we don't want it to be, we don't want people to come along and think we're just about money. We're not. Jesus is saying, serve me with everything. And so that's why we do it that way. But if you'd like to start, I want to encourage you today, start investing in the kingdom. Well, what are the questions we can think through? Number one, do you worship your money or do you worship with your money? Question to go home with. Do you worship your money or do you worship with your money? With the money that we've been entrusted with, do you serve God with it? Question number two, what idols fuel your worship of money? 
So often money, is, we don't just love that little piece of paper. I'm not like, wow, this paper's amazing. Like, I just love the smell of it, and you know, I can see through a little window, and it's holographic. And We don't do that. We love what money buys us. What is the idol, the deep-seated idol that you love, that money draws out of you? Is it pleasure, comfort, security? Do you think whatever that idol is will provide you more satisfaction than the God who's offering you 40 billion years in eternity? And then 40 billion more and 40 billion, it just goes on. Next question. How is money enslaving you? In other words, looking at your life, what are the areas where you go, look, I can't give up this thing because I've, I've got a commitment to pay this thing or that thing. And so I, I can't go on mission to do this thing. or I couldn't support a new church plant. Or there are these things in my life that I'm financially tied to. And there are right obligations. Family. We need to make sure we look, for our, look after our immediate family. The scriptures are clear on that. There's obligations to our local church. Um, 1 Corinthians 9, we'll talk through that. Um, that. that We need to be giving to the local church as, as a priority. There's obligations of the gospel going out across the world. <laughs> How are we using what we've been given? Is money enslaving us so that we're like, I'm so caught up in this thing or that thing that I can't use it for the kingdom? Now, it's not saying you don't invest, but saying you think through the money that's on loan to be shrewd, providing the best return for the future that we see in Jesus. Next question. If Jesus set your budget, what would be different? If Jesus set your budget, what would be different about the way you spend your money? Now, for a lot of us, as we think through our budgets, we kind of look at what's coming up and the bills that are coming. Uh, And I heard a preacher say recently, he said, it's never a good time to give money. I don't know if you've ever felt that. At the moment, it's it's just not a good time. It's never a good time, which means it's always a good time. Because if it's never a good time, well, now's the time to start. Because <laughs> it's not going to be any different next week. It's always going to be the same. It's going to be hard. And so I want to say for us, if, if you're not giving, now's a great time to start. To see this generous joy that God has given us. And I want to say, if you aren't giving here at EV because you think it's not a wise investment, I'd love you to come speak to our exec or myself and, and say, look, it'd be great to think through that. Because we want to make sure that all that we're doing as a church is a wise investment for the future. Well, I want to stop now and ask some questions for maybe about six or seven minutes. I'll I'll answer the questions rather than ask them. Uh, So hopefully you've been sending them through. Uh, I'll end, we'll pray, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So let's see how we go. Oh, there's one there, but there's none here. Cool. In the context of this passage, what does faithful mean? I think in the context of the passage, he's saying it means to, to do with what we have on loan now the best we can with an eternal perspective. In other words, he talks about be faithful with this unrighteous money. Or with, in other words, be faithful with the money that was on loan from your, your boss in the manager uh, that, that you were supposed to be looking after. Be faithful with the money that's on loan from God now to use it the best way for the kingdom, whether that's little or much. And then the genuine return that you start when you genuinely own, genuinely own things, I think is what happens in eternity when we become inheritors in God's kingdom. That's that one. If Jesus commands us to give our money cheerfully back to God, is it sinful and disobedient if we fail to give? Um, yes, it is. We're disobeying God. 
Uh, and if we're also, if we're doing that out of a compulsion, it's sinful and disobedient to our God. We, we've missed the point. He's not saying, look, this is going to be a struggle for you. He's saying, this is the best investment ever. It's going to last 40 billion years. It's going to go for, why would you, why would you invest in anything else? Why are you buying coffee? What, what, do you, what do you care about a house or visiting Europe for? You're going to have eternity with God and his people. Now, can we buy a house? Yeah, we can use the funds that we have uh, to, to enjoy gifts God has given us. Can we use those houses for the kingdom? Absolutely. We should use everything for the kingdom. Can we go on holidays? Yeah, it's great to go on holidays and enjoy God's creation and be rested and re-energized. Jesus didn't use every minute of every day just proclaiming the gospel. He had times of pulling back and retreat and looking into God's word and praying with God and re-energizing. He was human. We are human. We need to enjoy the world God has given us. But on that last day, God will look over how we've used every cent, every minute, every hour, every thought. And we need to be able to say, look, what a joy it has been to enjoy God's creation and to invest wherever we can to stretch ourselves out of um, joy and generosity to see more people in the kingdom. I think it's sinful. The Bible says it. (laughs) That's what we should be doing. Next question. Should we pray and about and consider giving God in all purchases and in all the ways we use our money? Yes. And I say that thinking through not every decision, Lord God, should I, you know, buy this parking ticket today? You, know, you need to park the car. Like, and you sit there and you, you're like, what am, what am I? We want to be in an attitude of depending on God. So as we park our car, as we drink our coffee, as we eat our dinner at night, you know why Christians say grace? just means giving thanks for God's gift to us. It's a remembrance that everything, every meal we eat, God has given us. We should give thanks to God for every breath we take and every beat our heart beats because he has given all of it to us. He's, he's the God who owns it all. Uh, and so, yeah, we should think through and consider and read the scriptures how we're spending our money to be wise and astute and shrewd with all that God has loaned us in this life now. Um, but it doesn't mean we need to be so... Um, careful about it that we just pray about it for 60 years and then we missed out on all these opportunities of partnering with people Uh yep so don't spend too long praying about it does the bible give any tips on recognizing greed in others that might lead us to rebuke and correct them on it yes it does it says take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of someone else's right it's so um i know that question has been asked in in a generous way but i just think how it applied to me before I go and talk to someone else about, hey, look, you know, how are you going with greed? I want to go, look, I, I struggle here. I, I, you know, I look at new things and I think, well, what would it be like to have that new, new thing there or um, to just be a holiday in this place? Or, and not all of them are bad. Um, I used to, with a group of guys uh, who were pastors back in Sydney when I was a pastor there, um, we used to go out once every six weeks and we'd grab breakfast together and we'd ask one another 3G questions. How are we going with girls, grog and greed? And grog is Australian for alcohol. I don't know if it's similar here. But we go, how are you going with, are you serving and loving your wife as you serve God? Is there anyone else in your life that you're tempted to trip over? Um, Alcohol, you know, are are you becoming too dependent on alcohol in any way, shape or form? Uh, Because they're things that can trip up ministry. And greed, how are you going at, at being generous with all God has given? And we chat about that together and it was helpful. It was really helpful. Uh, it's part of our Christian maturity, and so I think that's one of the ways that we can do that. Um, you know, chat with your Connect Group leader. Encourage, uh, I, don't, I haven't asked the Connect Group leaders for this, but ask them how they're going with their generosity and greed. 
Uh, they're, they're leading us in our small groups. And come to them and go, look, what do you struggle with? How can we think through that? Go and have conversations with your connect group leaders and, and make money a topic that we, we don't shy away from. I think it's helpful not to say, oh, this is how much, to kind of, because pride so easily creeps in. Look at how much I'm giving. Um, it's about being faithful with what God has given, and it's God who will test our hearts. But I think it's worth, you know, how are you struggling? Where are you stretching to be able to see the kingdom keep going forward? Okay. Oh, that was the last question. Is that right? Brilliant. Well, I want to end with one thing before we pray. I think there are two responses to Jesus' word that we've heard today. One of those is to hear what he's saying and be angry. How dare you tell me what I do with the funds that I have? Or begin to just justify, well, I do this, or I give some time here but not there, or I I do these so many sacrifices for you, why should I have to give up these other areas as well? If that's you today, can I encourage you to keep coming back to Jesus and say this is not an onerous burden but an opportunity for joy, an opportunity to invest in what matters most and to think through your own heart. Are you friends with money or are you using the money God has entrusted to you to bless friends and eternity? And that's what God is on about. The other response is to hear Jesus' call to despise the love of money and instead run to the love of our God and seeing people and others love our God. Uh, Eternity is a very, very long time. And right now, we have at our disposal borrowed money. It's not ours. We can't take it beyond death. But we can use the funds that God has entrusted to us to see more people spend an eternity with us. We can, in effect, change the shape of heaven. So will you today use your borrowed money, your borrowed time and energy and intellect to see more people? Trust Jesus. Join this king. Follow him as disciples and look forward to an eternity with them in heaven. That's what Jesus wants us to do, to lift our eyes to the future he has to offer us. Let's pray. Father God, today we, we're aware that For many of us, uh, money is an area where we do find our significance and our security and our comfort. But Lord, we know that you provide everything and everything is yours. So we pray that you, by the work of your spirit in, in your word today, might give us that deep longing to see more and more people in eternity, sharing relationally with us forever, that our eyes might be fixed on that horizon You'd help us to be shrewd with the time and energy and money that we have now to see your kingdom grow. Father, we ask that you'd fix our eyes on the debt that has been paid in your son. As we reflect at what it cost you for our eternal life, that Jesus died in our place and took the penalty that we deserve, your wrath for the whole of creation on his shoulders. We are so thankful that Jesus has paid it all. So we pray that you would... Help us to run to him and therefore use everything for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to celebrate together in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is really a great reminder of the cost Jesus bore for us. Um, There's going to be some bread and some juice passed around. Just stay in your seats uh, while the musos sing a song that will help us to reflect on the amazing cost of Jesus and the price that he paid. Maybe reflect on it and think through Is this something that I want to change the way I think about the costs I go through? And if you're not a Christian today, uh, maybe just let it go past. 
because this really is something that we're saying, yeah, I trust in Jesus. Uh, Jesus is my king and he's died for me and I need to eat of the bread, not this bread, but I need Jesus to die in my place and his blood to be spilt for me to be saved. And if you don't believe that, well then, I don't think there's any point in going, yes, I celebrate this. But if today you're like, I, I want that eternity. I want to serve Jesus with my king. Then maybe take this meal as your first as a Christian to take it in it. So grab the grape juice and the bread, hold on to it uh, until we finish. Then we'll come together at the end. We'll eat and drink and then sing. Someone can bring some stuff out for the team too. Friends, as we consider Jesus' death in our place, Jesus tells us to take and break the bread, to look and recognize that his body was broken so that ours didn't need to be. 
and that we could be thankful and celebrate, to celebrate that Jesus paid the price for us and to celebrate that he is coming back again, that he will return and put things right. So when you, right, yeah, when you take and eat this, remembering Jesus' body was broken for us and be thankful. As you consider this juice represents Jesus' blood being poured out, the creator of all things, the one that flung stars into space, had his hands surrendered to nails on a cross so that we didn't need to face death for eternity. When you drink this in celebration of what he has done for us, I'd be thankful. Let's pray. Lord, we're aware that these symbols of Jesus' death in our place don't do anything for us other than remind us of what he has done. But for that, Lord, we are so thankful. We are so thankful that we get to participate in your mission, that we can stand before you now as people who are sinners but forgiven. Father God, we are so thankful that because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, we can call you our dad and we can look forward to an eternity that does not perish, spoil or fade, that is kept in heaven for us. We pray this reminder would help us to think through and be spurred on to serve you with our all, that we might live with everything, that all that we have might be in Christ. Pray this in his great name. Amen.